was feeling forsaken, feeling neglected. That one who is heavy laden, who is saying, God, when will it be my turn? Will you meet with us in a very special way? Lord, anoint him, O God, that as he speaks, God, he will speak as your oracle. Let signs and wonders accompany the word he speaks this morning. Glorify the name of your son, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Jesus' precious name, Amen. Wonderful. Good to see you guys this morning. If my uh, voice is a little hoarse, it's because I was at the football yesterday with my brother. And we won 6-2. <laughs> and we're above Arsenal in the league, so this is the day that the Lord has made. Yeah, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Anyway, so uh, wonderful to see you. Thank you to Joe and Chris for leading us in worship this morning. We're so grateful just to be led into the Lord's presence. So thank you, guys. I uh, want to carry on in our series this morning. And I won't say this at the beginning of, of every message, but we started three weeks ago. So for anybody who wasn't here, we are spending time in the 59 one another statements of the New Testament. And these are commands to the people of God about how we do life and church together, how we relate to one another. And uh, the reason that that's so important is because they are commands to us. And one of the themes that has emerged since the summer, and I think has been really pressed on us, is about how so often in church life we major on the minors, but we leave off the very things that God has called and commanded us to. And so, so often we will uh, major on things that are good to do, things that are important to do, the style of worship and how good the message is and how slick the presentation is. But then we won't put as much priority on the things that God calls us to do, like make disciples or love one another deeply, or bear with one another in their burdens. These things that actually we're told and commanded to do, they kind of sit on some list over here that occasionally we'll think about, but don't necessarily prick our consciences, or don't cause us as much kind of mental space as, well, they didn't play my favorite song this Sunday, or I didn't particularly like the, the preacher this Sunday, or the welcome wasn't great. All of those things are important. But the whole kind of point and drive of this is that we would actually delve into and turn our affections, our resources, and our attention to the very things that God has called us to. Not just because it is good to do for us, but actually because it is central to mission. And what we're going to look at this morning is this passage in John 13. So if you've got your Bible, stick a finger in there for a minute. But actually this whole kind of conversation that Jesus has, he's saying that the way that we relate to one another, the way that we love one another, is at the very core of how we are to reach those that are not part of the church. He says, by this they will know that you are my disciples, by the way that you love one another. In John 17, he says, Oh, I pray that you would be one as I and the Father are one, so that the world would know that I came. But we're so preoccupied, actually, we want to kind of divert our attention to the programs that might work, or the tools that might work, or the social media presence that might work. But we don't put as much energy into believing the words of Christ when he says, This, by the way, is how people will know. Because that's harder. Actually, that requires the gift and the leading of the Holy Spirit. 
That requires us to put things down. That requires us to be vulnerable. Frankly, it's not as sexy as some of the other stuff that goes on in church life. But friends, I honestly believe that the seasons have changed slightly and that we have to press into what the Lord is calling us. And that when people come into this space, they will recognize that we are a diverse bunch. I think it's one of our great strengths that we are so diverse. We come from all kinds of corners, with all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of stories. Some of us are new Christians. Some of us have been Christians for a little bit longer than that. Some of us have wonderful journeys with the Lord. Some of our journeys have been up and down. Some of us know loads of stuff, and some of us don't feel like we know anything. Some of us, dare I say, come with loads of baggage. Correct that, all of us come with loads of baggage. Some of us are better at hiding it than others. But when we come together, this diverse community, people would say, there's something of God in this place. There's something about the way that they love one another. There's something about the way that they're unified. There's something that even though they're so diverse, these guys just care for one another in a way that's different to anything else that we've seen. And this can only be as a product and as a result of what God is doing. That's the way that Jesus has wired church to be. That's what he calls us to do. That's what he commands us to do. And that's the direction that we want to set off in. And so uh, that's why we're covering these 59 statements. Not 59 sessions. I'm sure you all will be glad to know. We'll cover it off over the next few months, give or take. And uh, this morning, as I was saying before, we kind of break these statements up into love, unity, and service. And we're going to come back to love this morning. Ola spoke brilliantly last week about service, which seemed fitting given the events of the death of Her Majesty the Queen. So John 13, if you've got that, a very, very uh, straightforward uh, verse I'm sure we're all familiar with. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And in this text, and in this kind of passage, Jesus is going to show us by his words and his works what that really means. Now, a question for us at this stage is, what was new about that commandment? Because we can kind of trace that back to the Mosaic law about loving the neighbor. But what was new about this particular commandment? When Jesus says, guys, this is a new thing, what exactly was new? Well, the great Bible teacher John Piper said, there's two things that we can kind of take from this. One is pattern. And one is power. And so that makes sense to me that we look at this through those two lenses, pattern and power. In terms of pattern, for us to understand the scripture, we really need to see it in the wider context of what's going on here. And so actually this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples takes place over several chapters, but in one particular time and place. And it starts at the beginning of John 13 where I think it is one of the most significant and profound texts in the whole of the scriptures. What is the pattern that Jesus gave his disciples and has given to us so that we may follow and love one another as he loved us? Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved 
his own who were in the world, he loved them until the end. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them until the end. Now we can just breeze over that, but just let's consider this for a bit. Three years he's trekking with these guys, around about 120 disciples. These 12 disciples in this inner group of three disciples, he's with them for three years. Three years. Now, I kind of think that we kind of assume that most of that was just wonderful and glorious, and there was the occasional mess up, but we know that's not how it works. Three years of you know, two steps forwards and ten steps back. Three years of frustration. Three years of the disciples falling out. Three years of men jokes of what happens when men get together for too long and they go camping and walking a lot. Three years of them messing up and arguing and falling out. Three years of Jesus having this front row seat to sin and brokenness. Three years for him to know that this was a journey to the cross Three years for him to realize that he's going to go through a murderous and bloody and brutal death. And every single day, he sees the very thing that is going to nail him to that cross as he witnesses the sin and brokenness of humanity. Even in this particular moment, Luke 22 tells us that even after three years of being with him, even after three years of the teaching, even after three years of seeing him minister, they were still flipping arguing. They were still arguing about who would be the greatest while this took place. Three years of this, and he loves them until the end. He loves them until the end. And friends, I want to just divert from here for a minute and say, do you know this? Do you know that he will love you until the end? I've been a Christian for 22 years-ish, 23 years. 23 years of messing up, 23 years of not getting it, 23 years of Jesus repeatedly telling me stuff and it being like bouncing off my three-inch thick skull. 23 years of sin and brokenness. 23 years of turning my face away, 23 years of not wanting to engage in worship, prayer, and reading the word. And he loves me until the end. And he will love you until the end. Philippians 1 says this. He who began a good work in you. No, let me start this again. He says this. I am confident of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way, because we are all partakers of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the proclamation of the gospel. Do you understand that? Paul is saying, it is right for me to say this, I am confident in this, that if you think that you chose God, it doesn't work like that. Now, I'm not getting into a debate about uh, Calvinism and all that stuff and whether we choose or he chose us but what I do know is this that he initiates something that it was he who began this good work in you and Paul says I'm confident that because he began this good work in you he will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ because we always get it right or because we're always great Christians or we always tick all the boxes in church life no because it is a gift 
a free gift of grace to all of us. Are you, do you know this? Does it grip your heart? Like tomorrow when the alarm goes off and you don't feel particularly Christian, I just want to remind us all that he's got it, that he will love us until the end. And that's the pattern that he lays out for us. You know, in that room with his disciples, as he begins to wash their feet, if anybody in that moment, if anybody in that moment could have been frustrated, if anybody in that moment could have said, you know what, guys, actually, I deserve a little bit of worship and praise here. I deserve a little bit of recognition. If anybody could have felt that way, it was him. But what do we see? In the midst of them falling out about how great and wonderful they would be, this saviour that we love, he picks up a towel and he goes to each and every one of them and he just begins to act. He initiates, he goes to them and he takes their feet and begins to wash them. How might we sum this pattern up? Humility. It's humility. And we must never, ever take for granted that this Savior that we worship, he reveals himself from beginning to end, from birth and to a crucifixion. He has revealed himself in humility and the issue with this is that actually humility isn't a popular word right now. It's never been a popular word because the disciples were falling out and displaying their own pride and arrogance at this point. But culturally, this is not a popular word because culturally, we have never ever seen such levels of individualism and entitlement. <clears throat> Consider this, 40 years ago, and I'm not making a political or doctrinal statement with this, 40 years ago, if somebody made a statement that they are a woman trapped in a man's body or that they are a black person trapped in a white person's body or that they are a disabled person trapped in an able person's body, which are all known phenomena, 40 years ago, only very specific healthcare people would have known what that statement means. 30 years ago, <clears throat> students who, who would study uh, postmodernism and kind of deconstructionism, students of philosophy that maybe began to study the words of Foucault and what words mean and how they relate to each other and is there any such thing as truth, they may have understood what these statements mean. Ten years ago, your neighbours, despite their own political opinions, would have understood what these statements mean. Today, everybody understands what these statements mean. Even our children understand what these statements mean. And the reason I'm highlighting that is to show us how much public discourse, how much the cultural narrative, how much the kind of cultural imagination has shifted in a very, very short amount of time where we have reached a level of individualism to the power that says, I think it and therefore it is true despite any other form of external evidence of verification. If I think it and I manifest it and I click my heels hard enough, it is absolute truth. 
And the power of individualism says, and because it is true, you must relate to me in a certain way. Because it is true, you must treat me in a certain way. You must employ me in a certain way. You must be friends with me or not in a certain way. It is an unprecedented level of individualism. And friends, how do we put that through the grid of this Jesus who is so unbelievably overcome with humility in this moment? And has that even worked for us? Does it work for us on a societal level? We live in the most connected time we've ever lived, and yet over and over the studies show that we feel the most disconnected and lonely, particularly young adults. We live in the most technologically advanced period that we've ever been in, and overwhelmingly the studies show that we are the most... uh, overcome with all kinds of things. Sadness and this feeling of loneliness and emptiness. We've just lived through one of the most wealthiest and healthiest periods that we've ever known. And again, the studies show that that has made zero difference for us. I don't know about you, but the world feels so disconnected and confused and fragmented and not in any way unified right now. And because of that, I want you to also know that yes, what Jesus says and does, his words and his works, they are of ultimately, primarily, cosmological significance. In other words, when we put our trust in him, in Romans 10.9, we declare with our mouths that he is Christ and Lord and was raised from the dead. Yes, we will too be raised from the dead and we will too have eternal life with him. And that is eternal and cosmological. But friends, also, this message we have, it makes sociological sense. It makes philosophical sense. It makes intellectual sense. And now is not the time to be ambiguous or hiding away or not clear about who this person is and how he acts and what he says. Because in this time, in this time of confusion, we have something of hope and clarity. We have something that absolutely ticks all of those boxes. Are you confident in this? Are you confident in this? If you're not, that's something we can pray into. If you're not, and none of us have ever, if we're honest, none of us ever feel totally confident and full of courage and boldness. It's just not like that. But we can pray into it. That is something we can ask the Lord for. Are you confident of your place in him? Are you confident that he's got you? That for those who genuinely know the Lord, he's going to bring it to completion. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. A couple more things I just want to say about this. How are we doing for time? Um, You know, as Jesus gives us this pattern that's kind of rooted in humility, rooted in service, as he kind of shows how to love one another, and then says, do this, like this is, this is what I want you to do. 
So often when we read this text, and we'll come into it more around Easter about the, the foot washing, I just want to say one thing. So often we detach it from the very practical nature. And there was something intensely practical going on in this particular text, right? I mean, we know that the disciples did not walk around on paved, um, you know, concrete and all that kind of stuff. And we know that the disciples probably didn't have the shoes that you see in things like Ben-Hur and all that kind of stuff, the the open-toe sandals. Probably not. And we know that um, when the disciples came together to eat in this way, that they would have lay together almost kind of sideways in such a way that having clean feet was a total necessity because you'd be eating one way and turning around the other and potentially seeing feet. And so in this particular scene where Jesus is showing us, is giving us this pattern, absolutely there is something, as it, as it always is with the Lord, there is something going on beyond what we kind of see. There is something of depth, of course, but there's something really practical happening that's linked to practical service. And I just think in church life sometimes we relegate practical service to like another form of serving. And some of you, when you think about how to love one another deeply, you display that, you show that through practical service. We see that every Sunday. There are people that show up early and give of their time. They've got busy lives to serve practically. And I just want to say to you, it is just as significant. We don't relegate that to like, oh, well, that's operational stuff. No, 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 no. It's spiritual. It's of significance. It's godly. It's how he did it. And then it's how he did it and said, go and do the same thing to other people. And so all of you who serve here practically... I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, we absolutely acknowledge that this is absolutely intrinsic to the way that Jesus has shown us to love one another. It is not a second-rate form of service. For those who, through the week, are meeting people, and I know of many of you who serve neighbours, and you do it in the hidden places, it is absolutely intrinsic to how Jesus tells us to love one another as he has loved us. It is not second rate. It is of deep spiritual significance. So that's pattern. I'm just worried with time. The second thing I just said at the beginning was power. So just very, very quickly. Um, where are we? Oh yeah, here we are. Remember, this conversation is taking place over a few chapters. Now in John 15... Let's just quickly turn there, verse 9. It says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now remember, this is kind of happening in a branch, kind of offshoot vine context, okay? And so we have a pattern from Jesus about how we are to live out his love, how we are to love one another as as he has loved us. We see that in John 13 at the beginning of this conversation. 
But there's something here about the power of Jesus that is also just as important. Because, I don't know if you've noticed this, it's really difficult to love people deeply without the Holy Spirit operating in our lives. Anybody tried that? It works for about four hours in my house. You know, it's like this constant thing. We have to turn to him. But there's a principle here. Jesus says that I have a relationship with the Father. I am nourished by the Father. I abide in the Father, and now I am loving you in the same way. Abide in me. What does that mean? It means we have to receive the nourishment that Jesus has for us. It means we have to be open to his voice, open to his leading, open to his scripture speaking to us, open to a godly community encouraging us, challenging us, open to him in our worship, open to his still small voice. It's abiding in him. And when we abide in somebody and when we receive that kind of nourishment that he himself has got from the Father, what is the outflow of that? We obey his commandments. We obey his commandments. Commands don't feel like commands when you love somebody and when you know they love you. It is almost like the overflow of this relationship that we are to have. And so, friends, it is the abiding in Christ that gives us the power to love one another in the way that he has loved us. If you think that you can do it apart from that, even if you are the most loveliest, and I know there's loads of you, the loveliest person in the world, you can't do it apart from abiding in him. You can't do it apart from being nourished in him. It just won't happen. You'll get frustrated. You'll burn out. You'll feel disappointed. This constant nourishment of coming into the branch and being the vine, receiving that from him, so that we too can then live that among each other. Pattern and power. Pattern and power. A friend of mine uh, was in prison for 18 years. His name's Rob. And he was part of a Mexican gang. And uh, Ida and I have been to his house, and uh, we survived, which was really, really good. And (laughs) in prison, um, he became a Christian. And uh, (laughs) Rob is one of the most godly people I know. He's one of the most loving people I know. And uh, you probably get to do 18 years in prison means that some serious things happened whilst he was involved in in Mexican gangs. And um, he, in a book called Letters to the Church by Francis Chan, he talks about gang life. And he talks about how um, in this gang... He felt such connection. He felt such love, such community. And he said these guys would be in and out of each other's lives all the time. All the time. And when he came away from that to become a Christian, he feared for his life. Absolutely feared for his life because you don't leave the gang without consequence. But this gang gave this young man who was totally bereft of any other good influence in his life. It gave him this sense of place, this sense of being known, this sense of being loved. What would that gang look like if over an amount of time 
Rob left, and then he met another one of his gang members. And they were in the supermarket, because life's moved on, and now they shop for groceries and all that kind of stuff. And they said, well, what, what are you doing? And Rob says, well, I left the gang, and I, I'm going to a different gang now, and um, it's quite good. And the, his friend says, oh, yeah, I left our gang, and I go to a different gang. We really like the kids' work. And, uh, and he says, but what, what's good about your gang? Well, it's good, you know, we, we've got really good croissants at the beginning and um, continental breakfast. And he says, oh, I'll come and join you. And Rob says, well, yeah, come and join me. He says, but next Sunday I may not be around because I may have got other things that uh, may be in. So I might be there, I might see you there. Not much of a gang life. Not much of a gang life. Not much of community. Not much of being placed or known or loved. Not much of that sense of family. So often that's, so often that's how we think about church. So friends, we don't want to be a Mexican gang. <laughs> and we don't want all the tattoos that Rob's got all over his face and eyelids, but still give testament to his time and being in this Mexican gang. And we don't want the counterfeit. But we do want the real thing. We do want the real thing. And what I love about Oakley, and one of the reasons we just felt so delighted and privileged to be here, was that we sensed there was something of that here. And I just want to be honest and say, it's not everywhere. It's not everywhere. And we must never, ever take that for granted. There is something about the sincerity here. There's something about the warmth here. We just don't take it for granted. In fact, it's the thing we press into. It's the thing we press into. And honestly, I believe as others come, they will also know that. And not just because they'll join, like that, that's not the goal. The goal is Jesus. The goal is Jesus. So Father, Lord, I thank you Father, I thank you for your son. Father, I thank you that we worship the Savior who came in humility, who serves in humility. Father, I thank you that he has given us a pattern to live by that makes sense on every single level. And Father, I pray for us as a church community is your expression of kingdom here in this place. Lord, may you shape our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Will you convict us where we need to be convicted, challenge where we need to be challenged, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Father, may we love one another as your Son has loved us so that the world may know. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for that word, Reverend Seb.
Just before the service, the pre-service, uh, the pre-service prayer time, there were a few words that came, and I believe this might minister to one, two, three, four people. If these words apply to you, just be, feel free to come out and be prayed for, um, and I believe that you would leave here transformed. So the first word was from the book of Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. So think on things that are pure. Don't allow negative thoughts to fester. The second word was God never leaves nor forsake. And the third word was the battle belongs to the Lord. And the final word was walk in the word and the truth. So if any of these words apply to you, please feel free to come out and be prayed for. Um, don't miss this moment. So we're just going to take our final song. Yeah.